This is the Workin' With series, presented by your host, Hayley Sudbury. Listen in each month to find out who we're working with. Hayley sits down with some of the world's most exciting leaders and entrepreneurs to chat about the companies they love, their definition of success, and the real secret behind it all, their superpower. I am with Elizabeth Yamayaro, who is the global head of the UN Hifushi movement, and she's going to share what her other titles are as well. I'm sitting in the UN's headquarters in New York. It is a fabulously warm day, and it's finally great to meet you in person, Elizabeth. No, likewise. Thank you so much for coming to see us. Well, look, it's just absolute delight. We're big fans of the Hifushi movement. We think, obviously, men need to be part of the conversation. They need to be allies. We need to all be in this together to create a more equal and balanced world. I'd love you to share just a little bit more around the initiative for our listeners. So if you haven't heard of it, you get a sense around what it is all about. Yes. In early 2014, we posed ourselves a very big question. We are the United Nations. We have a mandate to ensure gender equality to every single girl and every single woman in every single country around the world, no matter who they are, no matter where they are. It's a very, very lofty goal. And naturally, the question was, if we are going to do this, what is the best way that we could approach, reapproach this issue of gender equality, which has often been seen as a woman issue? And so we created the He for She movement, recognizing that men are part of society. In fact, they're one half of society. And yet, at the same time, they also hold the majority of the world's power. And we launched He for She with Emma Watson, Global Goodwill Ambassador of the UN, British actor Emma Watson on September 20, 2014, and it was really a call to action for men to say, gender equality is your issue too. Please come to the table. Let's work on this in the true sense of solidarity. So this is what the movement is trying to accomplish. Fabulous. And what have been some of your favorite moments so far? I mean, you've been in this from the beginning. Can you share a few stories? I think the biggest moment for me was that evening of September 20, 2014, Emma Watson delivers this impassioned call at the UN and within three days, a hundred thousand men answered the call. Within five days, there was at least one man in every single country in the world who had signed on to the Hifushi movement uh, or at org. And within those first five days, there was 1.2 billion conversations on social media and mostly from men. And it really showed me that there was an appetite and that men were actually very keen to be part of the solution. And there had been this huge silent majority, you know, that wasn't engaged because they didn't quite know how to engage with gender equality. So that was a very high point, you know, to think that we created something that resonated with men. Wow. And so it's been, you know, we're coming up to four years now. Yes. What's the next big focus for you? What are you looking for? What's the win? Where do we take this? In fact, I I would say that the genesis of the sort of what happens next came three months after we launched Here for She with this big, powerful speech of Emma Watson. We started to see men who were in very you know, big positions of power also say, I'm here for she. They were tweeting their images on social media. The entire EU commissioners organized an event and, you know, declared themselves here for she. The Secretary General of NATO signed on, the Secretary General of the EU Council. And then there was a big moment when I sort of thought, well, what does this all mean, right? Because 
we don't want this to be a click activism kind of movement where you simply say I'm here for she. So three months later, we were in Davos. This was January 2015 at the World Economic Forum and we were launching an initiative called the He For She Impact 10 by 10 by 10 initiative, which is literally our top-down 50-50 by 2020 initiative. We want to be able to achieve parity across critical policy areas, whether it be equal pay, whether it be having you know parity on senior leadership across companies. And it's an engagement of 10 global CEOs from CEO of Unilever to McKinsey to Barclays to Vodafone, et cetera, to, and then 10 heads of states, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada is one of those, Abe of Japan is part of those, Rwanda, President of Malawi. So we have 10 of those heads of states and then 10 university presidents, and they had to identify three game-changing commitments, one of which has a parity indicator to be implemented by 2020. So what's next is that we've been implementing since 2015. We are tracking what is happening across this group. We are looking at the emerging proven practices and documenting what's working and what isn't working. The ultimate goal for us as a movement is to be a solutions-driven movement. There's a huge appetite. People want to change the world. People are looking for solutions on how to change the world and how to end gender inequality. So you will start to see, you know, beginning this year on during the UN General Assembly, we are launching our first solutions for gender equality. And I can give you a bit of flavor of what those are going to look like. So, I mean, despite the fact that World Economic Forum predicts that it's going to take us about 217 years, if I'm not mistaken, to achieve parity in the workplace, it's been really remarkable with the He For She movement to see that change is possible. You know, when you do engage the people at the highest level, when there's accountability, when there's ownership, things actually happen. A very good example is PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, one of our impact champions. They joined the He For She movement with a commitment to reach parity in their global leadership team. At the time in 2015, they had 18% of women uh, within that group. Within 15 months of implementation, they were able to reach parity. And currently, the data point is now at 47%. Wow. And so we are going to be sharing that as a solution to say, if you're a company of same scale, you know, here's what has happened within PwC. Here's the transformation framework that they utilize to achieve this kind of very, you know, groundbreaking change. But also within the solution, here are the things, the intervention that they tried. And these are the ones that worked and these are the ones that did not work because it's really important for us to also document that. And then being able to literally put the solutions in the hands of companies that want to create the same kind of change. So that's a really concrete example that's happened on the corporate side. If we look on the heads of states as well, Malawi came to the table with a commitment to end child marriage, which is a big issue in Africa. I'm from Africa myself. And within a few months of joining the movement, the government outlawed child marriage. But that wasn't really sort of the most exciting thing because we know that legislation exists in so many of these countries is how it's get, it gets implemented. And over the past few months, we've been working, I mean, the government has been working and engaging their own communities, engaging the male and the female chiefs, the same people that have married these young girls to begin with. And in 12 months, they've been able to annul 3,500 child marriages, and those girls are now back in school. So again, very concrete change. And so again, we'd like to provide a solution on how do you go from we have the legislation to actually implementation. And, and the big piece from Malawi for us is the cultural change because these issues are 
very entrenched in the culture of some of these societies and we've been able to do this in Malawi. Again, there's wow. more and more examples that I can share with you. I mean, I, I think it's fantastic to be addressing cultural change. How do you even frame that conversation in Malawi? I mean, I'm just interested yes. to, I mean, legislated great, but how did you actually do it? So, I mean, again, I would like to give all the credit to the government. You know, the president understood that being a he for she champion meant that he needed to be a role model. He made this game changing commitment and he sought to deliver on that. But also recognizing, and this is a big component to the he for she movement, that we recognize that cultural transformation happens when the top down and the bottom up move at the same time. So it isn't just good enough to say that we have the head of state engaged or the president engaged. We also have to go and engage the community. So we have a country office in Malawi. They have been engaging the community leaders, but we let them be in charge of shaping this, understanding that this was their commitment and they've been able to really do incredible things. You know, they are not waiting for the West to come and solve their challenges. They are saying, you know, this is our issue. We know how to fix this. We know how to speak to our people and change is happening. So it's quite, quite remarkable. It's phenomenal. Absolutely yeah. phenomenal. On the corporate side, do you think the real lever has been about, I mean, you shared PwC as an example, but actually setting those targets and sticking to them or quotas? Yes. So, I mean, I... I say the obvious, what gets measured gets done. You know, transparency is another key component thing for the He For She movement. In addition to these companies being able to outline their three commitments, we also made another non-negotiable commitment, which was that they had to release their gender parity data. This was something that, you know, they had to do. It was a non-negotiable. And I think that transparency also plays into a very interesting male ego where the men want to win. And so when the data is all out there, they look at each other's data and they say, well, I can do better than that. Uh, so I think that was really an important piece of this. And we even so, uh, and I say this really not as a way to name and shame them, but really it is a way to acknowledge that kind of leadership that we've seen in the movement that McKinsey is a 90 year old company. McKinsey had never released the agenda data prior to the He For She movement. And you can imagine that wasn't easy at all. You know, McKinsey has done numerous studies on the imperative of engaging women. And of course, their data does not match what they've been talking about, right? And so for them to be able to do this and say, you know, the data isn't great. We know that we could do better. And here are the commitments to do that um, was really encouraging for us. And we saw at the company sort of saying, well, you know, if McKinsey's data is out there and it isn't that great, then maybe we can also do the same thing. So I think, you know, the leadership happens at different levels and in different ways. So speaking of data, as you are well aware, and we had a conversation about this earlier, yeah. we've got now gender pay gap reporting in the UK and we've just had all companies reporting their over 250 employees, their first set of data from April this year. How do you feel about that? What do you think is going to happen as a result? What we're seeing is obviously there are still huge gaps in all of the industries we're working with as well. What are you sort of observing or thinking or feeling about that situation? So this is a topic that's also a big priority of ours because within the He For She Impact 10 by 10 by 10, I have four champions 
trying to close the gap on, on pay. I have two countries, Sweden and Iceland, and I'll actually talk to you about Iceland because they've done a lot more interesting things. And it's one of the solutions that we are going to be developing and sharing with the rest of the world. And then I have two companies, both French companies, Accor Hotels and Schneider, also trying to close the gender pay gap by 2020. And these are companies that have 300,000 employees. So it's a much, much bigger, you know, scale initiative. I think indeed it is encouraging to have the legislation because at some point, you know, things just have to be communicated, you know, because progress is very slow. You know, we are moving ahead, but it's very, very slow. So what you are seeing, I think, with most of these champions, at least on the he for she, is that by exposing their data, again, it has given them the almost sort of an incentive to want to do more because it's now visible, right? Nobody wants to look bad in the world and want visible. For example, Alcohol Hotels, when we started with them again, their gender pay gap was at 12%. Last year, they reported that they have now closed that gap and it's now at 4%. So we're certainly on target to achieve gender parity across all the Alcohol Hotels by 2020. Iceland is a very good example as well. Iceland came to the table as a he for she champion as you know, they've been leading in terms of gender equality across the, in fact, for the past eight years on the gender index from the World Economic Forum. One of the biggest gaps is, of course, with Iceland is, is the gender pay gap. Women are in the workforce, unlike some other countries where we are trying to solve for both things. How do we get women through the door? They are there in Iceland. They just are not getting paid equally. And so they are here for sure commitment is to ensure equal pay for all citizens. And in the past 12 months, we have worked with them and they've developed a mechanism or in in terms of how they're actually going to do that. So it's beyond just policy, right, legislation. So they are auditing every single company in Iceland, starting with the biggest corporation that employs thousands of people, all the way down to a small company with 25 employees, and do an annual certification towards equal pay, meaning that by the end of the initiative, only all those companies with equal pay will be able to stay in Iceland. So they've already done the initial auditing, ran a pilot initiative, 11 companies have passed for equal pay. They've now developed a symbol, which again, we're hoping working with uh, the our partners at ILO that this could become the universal symbol for, for equal pay. But, you know, it's it's got to be about the government taking ownership, but also the private sector taking ownership. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. On a really practical level, I mean, we've certainly looked a lot at this data in the UK as well. And whilst it's less about equal pay, it's more around the top quartiles of organisations are not employing and paying women the high salaries. Yes. So we know that no amount of recruitment is actually going to close it. There has to almost be this radical change. How do you support women to move up through the organisation so that they do actually hold those senior positions? And you retain them. Yes. Because we also know that smart women are not living just to have babies. Yes. You know, there's there's some cultural challenges. Yes. Have you seen anything practical or tangible that companies are starting to do or that you think is a great example of how to support and retain women that you could you could share? So Vodafone is doing some great work on there. And again, they're one of our Hifushi Impact Champion. They've been working on how to, to your point, you know, we often talk about losing women through maternity leave, but there's other reasons why women don't want to stay in a toxic environment. Similar thing also with Backlace. And I'll give you, maybe let me focus more on the Backlace example because it's very concrete. So Backlace is a bank, very male-driven, very, very challenging environment. 
as part of their He For She initiative, they created what we're calling the He For She Male Allies group within Barclays. And this was a space for men or is a space for men, again, looking across the entire system. So not just top level, but also all the way down where they convene the men, the men themselves come together and talk about these gender equality issues. This will facilitate and has already started to facilitate some of the addressing some of this issue of the zero sum game that, you know, men start to fear when we start to talk about gender and diversity within the companies that it's a zero sum game that if a woman wins, I'm going to lose. Uh, if a woman wins, it's the other way around. And so this male eyelash group that come together that discusses issues and also address some of the fears that the men themselves are going through, which is really important. I know, you know, sometimes it's easier to say, well, they are so privileged, let's not worry about them. But unless they are also part of the conversation, they feel included in the conversation, it can be very, very hard. It just creates a very hostile environment. And what's interesting in Barclays is that for the past two years, the men from this male eyelash group have been hosting the International Women's Day festivities at Barclays. And so they are really part of the community and they're engaging. And we've also moved away from the women networks within the He For She corporate to creating a gender and inclusion network. So it's not just women coming together to talk about the issues that they're facing, but how would we also bring men into those conversations and, and creating a platform for dialogue. That's really what's needed. It's just people are fearful if they don't have enough information. So what didn't you know when you started out on your career path? We spoke earlier about your, your journey and um, it's, a, it's a broad journey. It's the public sector, it's the private sector. It's now leading this amazing movement. What do you wish you had have known that maybe you know now? I would say the definition of what it means to be a leader because especially with this movement and managing this movement, I've come to learn, you know, when I was young, my grandmother always used to say that being a leader doesn't mean being in front. It means removing obstacles so others can lead. And I didn't quite fully understand what that meant until I started to create a movement and immediately realized that you do not create a movement. People create movements. And so you are simply a facilitator you do all the work behind the scenes and you remove the obstacles that other people can lead. And this has really paid off in a big way, you know, having this ownership. I was just in South Africa about three weeks ago and I ended up in this village in South Africa. And unknown to me, there is this thing called he for she taverns. So the men in this small community in South Africa recognized on their own that there was a big issue with domestic violence within the community. And they attributed that to part of the reason was that men were simply spending their whole day drinking in a tavern, going back home, intoxicated and being abusive to their wives. And they decided that they were going to create a he for she tavern initiative, which I knew nothing about, where they would ensure that if you're a tavern owner, you have to at least have a gender equality conversation at your tavern and talk about, again, the issue of domestic violence and positive masculinity. You also have to make sure that you provide HIV aid screening for your patrons at least three times a year. Wow. Uh, they came up with their own rules in terms of how they were going to do this. And now there is about 144 he for she taverns. There's 4,000 men that are part of this program. It is all community-led. It's all community-driven. 
And it's a powerful way. So if you had said to me, Elizabeth, can you tell me the one billion ways that a man can be he for she? I would have never thought about a he for she tavern. And that's happening. And that's what true leadership is. If I, when I was young, I would have said, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And now I say, I'm a facilitator. I will cre- create a platform and I'll let people create the movement. Wow. So no obstacles. That is an extraordinary example of he for she. So again, it's the power of empowering the community, letting them create the movement and solve the things in the way that they see fit for their community. Yeah. Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. (laughs) Such great examples of, of real change at a very grassroots level. That's it. Who has it been that's championed you along the way? This is a very good question because there's not one person I can pinpoint. And this is also an important thing as we think about your previous question about what would I tell younger girls, that you are going to need more than one champion. You're going to need ideally champions from all genders because I've had both male, female, gender non-conforming mentors and sponsors that have given me different skill sets. And that's a really important thing. You know, we obviously need to have more female role models for young girls to look up to because, you know, you can't beat if you can't see it. But at the same time, if you are hoping to create bigger change in the world, if you're hoping to also, you know, work in different things and be a full, as fully realized a leader as you want to be, then you are going to need a lot of different skill sets. And, and I've found that, you know, I've learned different things from different genders as part of my career and my development. Can you maybe share a specific story that maybe was pivotal to you ending up in the role or a specific skill that you didn't think maybe you needed, but you got from one of these mentors or sponsors? I actually have to name Ken Fraser, who was the CEO of Mac. I had joined, so I was working at the World Bank, and then I was given an opportunity to go to the private sector. I had done almost 10 years in public sector. I knew nothing about the private sector. I'm a political scientist by training. Eventually, I want to go back to my continent. I'm from Africa. I'm from Zimbabwe. We know that there's a big need for female leaders, especially in the continent. I'm an African woman. I've got to go back and be part of the solution. So I realized after 10 years of being in the UN system that I really didn't know anything about financial or business acumen. And I wanted to be able to have that because if I'm going to be a leader for my continent, I've got to be able to have all those skills as well. And I ended up at Merck initially as the head of policy and external affairs for the African region and ended up meeting the CEO, whom I ended up taking on an African tour with some of the EC members to actually see the work on the ground. And it was there on the last leg I was with him in Ethiopia and we had a really candid conversation about what I wanted to do, my aspirations, and he said he wanted to mentor me. And I ended up relocating. That's how I moved to New York because I was in DC. Then I went to Switzerland, which is the emerging market office of Merck. And then I moved back to be at the headquarters. And I didn't really know that I needed to understand strategy. And I always also thought that you you can only be one or the other. You can be a strategist, but maybe you can't implement. And certainly I didn't know both of those things. And I ended up working at Merck under Ken Fraser's mentorship and was able to develop both which helped me when I came back to the UN to ask a different question when it comes to gender equality, because I'd been brought on board as the senior advisor to the Undersecretary General of UN Women. 
And my role was to look at how I can support with the vision of a gender equal world. And it became apparent to me because in strategy, you learn a lot about asking why and, and what else, what else might we do? And it was just a no brainer, you know, when I learned that this was the vision to create a gender equal societies. And my first question was, but where are the men? How else might we look at a different way of approaching this? So that was a really very useful tool that I've learned that has helped me to create a movement uh, called He for She. Now, I am sure that you have plenty of superpowers. I mean, I can feel the energy just from <laughs> you now being in this room, and I'm excited to see you in some sort of prime minister role in the future. <laughs> and I'm absolutely clear that's going to happen. But what is your superpower? Ah, oh, that's a tough question, isn't it? Do I have a superpower? Well, first of all, I'm... I'm the impatient optimist, right? I always believe that things, anything is possible and things can be done. But I think in a very concrete superpower, I think it's my ability to have empathy. And and that seems very obscure and I will unpack for you. <laughs> Please do. So I grew up in a small village in Africa. I come from a very humble upbringing. I was being raised by my grandmother. We had drought. I almost died from malnutrition. I ended up having to leave the village and ended up in the city, which fortunately for me became a really wonderful thing. I went to live with an aunt of mine and I ended up at school for the first time, which was exciting. But when I was at this school, I also learned my biggest lesson. So it was really wonderful to be able to actually go to school. I had not really gone to school. I was living in a village. I was doing all the chores that you can imagine a young girl in Africa does. I was 10 years old by the time I was I went to the city. And it was exciting for me to be given the opportunity to learn things, to learn how to speak English. But I also learned one of my biggest lessons, which was what it means to be unequal. Because in the village, we, all, we were all sort of equal, right? You don't notice disparity. You've always been part of the same environment. And all of a sudden, I was 10 years old, facing three levels of inequality all at the same time. It was the racial inequality. You know, I was at a white British school. It was the gender inequality. You know, I was coming late into education because I'm a girl. It was the social inequality. My family was extremely poor and I didn't really have much. And this made me realize, actually, funny enough, so I'm going through all this thing and I'm sort of comforted by this idea that, you know, I'll go back to my village with my grandmother and everything will be equal. And of course, I go back during a school holiday and nothing is the same because all of a sudden I'm now the girl from the city. But again, this made me realize how intertwined inequality is, the intersectionality of inequality that you are not just one thing, you know. I am a woman, so I have that disadvantage of the gender inequality, but I'm also a, a woman of color. So then there's that layer as well. But I'm also, you know, a woman trying to do this and trying to do that. Um, and that makes me, I think that has made me be very conscious of how other people might be feeling about things and how true equality happens when we're all equal. You know, I one of my favorite quotes that's on my Twitter is no one is equal to or equal because it's very complex. Just because you are a different color to me doesn't make you more privileged because you have your own things that you are trying to, you know, to to address. So so I think it's sort of having that empathy for humanity and recognizing how intertwined we are and and trying to 
you know, approach relationships that way and trying to solve for things in a less simplistic way of saying, this is a men versus woman issue. You know, this is how I could have looked at gender inequality. But then I also look at, no, it isn't just a woman versus men issue because also men have their own inequalities that we don't often talk about. We don't talk about the fact that the biggest killer for young men in the UK is suicide. We don't talk about that that suicide is part of the pressure of what it means to be man. We don't talk about toxic masculinity. We don't talk about, you know, it's just, it's it's very complex. And we have to have that compassion and humanity to understand that it's not a them versus us. We're in this together. You know, that's what equality is. I love it. So. So what does the future hold for you? I mean, you've kind of hinted at going back to Africa. I've hinted at Prime Minister. <laughs> But what does it really hold for you? I've got to go back home. I've got to go back home. I am who I am because Africa made me who I am and gave me so much. I live on one of the most incredible continents, Africa. So much potential. Great things have come out of Africa. We often don't hear this uh, this narrative. We talk about the poverty and the hunger, and which, again, those things are happening. But there's also really incredible things. And the resilience of Africans is incredible. And I think we can do more. And in 2016, 10 out of the most fastest growing economies were out of Africa. And, and I want to go back home and be part of that, you know. Well, I look forward to watching your journey and seeing you remove obstacles in Africa's way, as only you could. I've loved learning about your story and also what the movement is doing and continues to do. You have our full support as a He For She organisation, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. You've been listening to the Workin' With podcast series. You can find us on iTunes and at workinwith.com. That's W-E-R-K-I-N with.com. Dot com.